Hey, man, how's it going? Whereabouts in the world are you? Sean, I'm in Connecticut, United States of America. And uh, today was like, it was like the hardest meeting to ever join. So I knew there was something waiting oh, on the other side if I was to overcome <laughs> the challenges and be persistent. And I'm thankful to see your smiling face and be able to hear you clearly. How are you doing? These Illuminati bastards didn't want us to meet. <laughs> I can see why. Especially after hearing Max, man, he's just laying it down. This is that that's a hard show to follow right there. So what brought you on this path, Richard? Naivety and believe in my teachers. <laughs> that was pretty much it. I mean, I believed also later in life, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, CNN. I've watched more hours of CNN than I would like to admit to over the years. Uh, MSNBC. I've watched all the news channels. I didn't really start thinking for myself till about 20 years ago or so. Um, prior to that, because I am older than 20. <laughs> uh, I went to, uh, I grew up in Western Pennsylvania. So uh, like in the woods, it was pretty rural. And uh, I went to public school and I went through high school with a good GPA, hoping to go to college. And then from college, my plan was to get a degree and go out in the corporate world and uh, hit the big time. And I knew about a year into college that plan wasn't going to work out. So while I was still going, I was already started with college, but I already knew that it wasn't really education that I was getting to go forward and thrive in the world. So uh, a couple years into college, I invested into a franchise and it taught me entrepreneur skills, um, hiring, firing, sales, marketing, all these good things. When I graduated college, it was actually that entrepreneur education that allowed me to go into the corporate world, become very successful. And uh, before I was 30, I used those skills I learned to earn a million dollars. Unfortunately, no one ever taught me how to budget or financial plan or anything. So I spent that money about as fast as I got it back then. And um, I became a whistleblower in 2003. And I didn't know that was going to sacrifice my very lucrative career. But in hindsight, come on, these companies, if you blow the whistle on them, they're all together against everybody else on the planet. So you're going to be persona non grata. And then I applied my, my entrepreneur skills and my research skills. That's when I started getting into reading a lot of history books that no one ever talks about, searching out first editions of the artifacts and evidence of globalism, the new world order, they, them, those who would like to control the rest of uh, our lives and, and de delete freedom from our reality. And these were things that existed in reality, but weren't on the map that schooling gave me. And then a few years later, I discovered schooling's not really it's not really an educational process nor is it meant to be it's the training and conditioning of interchangeable parts for globalism and internationalism and uh there's a lot of non-profit foundations like the rockefeller carnegie ford foundation that have dedicated their entire 20th century's work toward changing the attitudes values behaviors and beliefs of americans to be more in line with globalism internationalism people who would readily adopt climate change as a reason for a spike in heart attacks and kids, you know, these sort of things. So they dumbed us down to the point where people can't think straight. They can't make choices, decisions, judgments in their life. They have to believe in authority because otherwise, what would they be left to do? They don't know how to figure out uh, truth from fiction on their own. So they haven't been empowered with those gifts of philosophy. Philosophy originally is a method to find truth. And if with that method, you can start to use your five senses, gain a sense of reality, process it, remove the contradictions, share it with others, take actions that lead to non-contradictory results. That usually results in freedom, liberty, success, happiness for people. But they took those tools away, which is what you, you know, that's why we have what we have today. There's a huge 
failure to communicate because people are reacting. They're going stimulus reaction, which is very much a form of slavery, instead of stimulus thinking thoughtful response. So I try to help with uh, my work over the past 16 years to help people put the the space back in between stimulus and reaction so they have time to think, to consider, and make thoughtful responses because I think the world that we want is a result of those types of things and not a result of people banging heads over right-left paradigm ideas. Wow. Were there some specific world events 20 years ago that was the catalyst for this change of thought? Yes, but the, uh, I'll note beforehand, the catalyst doesn't necessarily give you the solution. It just shows you the problem real big in your face, real up up close in your face. Um, <clears throat> when I graduated college, I had a choice with my skill set. What, what I was trained to do through entrepreneurism is solve high value problems. So I took my skill set to the marketplace. I said, who pays the most for high value problem solving? Pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical salespeople get paid the most. I mean, they're just, it's, a, it's like they got it in the back of their car. It's a real drug dealer type of game, right? They're bribing doctors. I wanted nothing to do with that. I already knew enough then that those pharmaceuticals that I would be selling to these doctors, they could hurt people. They're not really like what they're sold to be. My other option was enterprise software sales, working with big corporations, helping their IT departments do what they need to do, database modeling tools, things like this, right? And so I chose software sales. So I was in that... Uh, career for probably seven years total. In the first couple of years, it was just extreme success, blowing out my quotas, getting better offers from other companies. And so I never used my college degree to get a job. I got jobs through calling somebody on the phone and saying, I have this skill. Can we get a, can we do lunch? Can we have an interview? Right. Or somebody where I was working would call somebody, they had a friend in another company and I would get a call that's offered me like not double the money, but two thirds more money. So it was a good reason to move. So I'm working at companies like 18 months. I'm moving on. I end up in New York City. And um, the accounts I had at that time were the world's largest banks, financial services companies, insurance companies. Um, I had handled a whole bunch of other types of accounts prior to living in New York. Like I had Silicon Valley companies. I you know, had a, a career of different territories. But at that time, uh, it was a New York territory. So I have an account list. And so, uh, you know, what are we taught in college about these companies? They're just big insurance companies and banks to me, right? I don't know about the New World Order. I don't know about the Federal Reserve. I don't know about J.P. Morgan or Jekyll Island or any of these things. I ended up working um, for my, the company I worked at was a 300-person company. It just went public. <clears throat> and they were selling like a $5,000 product. So it's hard for that company to get big deals together, right? So they were looking for a salesperson who could go out and find them a big fish. The big fish I found was a company called Marsh and McLennan Companies. So it's an international conglomerate uh, with a whole bunch of different companies under it. And the, the, the end result is they're the world's largest insurance brokerage and reinsurance brokerage to that, expect, to that extent. So it's not even just straight up insurance, it's insurance on insurance. So like, um, Derivatives are like bets on bets in the insurance world. So it was reinsurance. Marsha McLennan had two locations in New York. 1666 Avenue of the Americas was their headquarters, but all their IT stuff, all their computer stuff was in the World Trade Center. So we had a team there doing a project called Marsh.com. So it's World Trade Center one. It's 96 through 98th floors or what we're working on. 
and we got computer programmers there helping them out. Uh, that deal for my company brought in a million dollars in uh, software and about $5 million in services. Well, moving forward on that account, um, I ended up getting fired. So we closed or we, I got a verbal approval on a Monday. I went to work on a Tuesday. So I just closed, you know, on the phone. I got an approval for a $5 million deal, phase two, which is huge for my company. I went to work Tuesday morning, kind of being on top of the world, you know, and um, I got fired. So they said, uh, you know, Rich, today's not your lucky day. We're letting you go. Now, really, it is a lucky day. Otherwise, I probably would have been in the buildings that morning, still servicing that account. So that summer, I spent chilling. Like, I got fired. I didn't fight it. But I was interested. Like, what did I do to get fired? A person like me in my career, I'd never been fired. I'd never been fired from any job in my life. So I was a little curious. So I had gotten the documents that I had sent around the night before I got fired. And what I was saying was, we had just closed this other part of the deal, and where's the money that uh, you guys are charging the client already? So I, because we closed the new part of the deal, I felt bold enough to be like, you guys also owe us money for this other $5 million that aren't on our books. What are all these hours, right? And I sent timesheets with everyone's names and hours. That's the thing that likely got my boss's boss to fly in overnight and fire me the next morning. Not the fact that I closed a very lucrative deal for the company. So I had those documents and I wasn't really taking any action on them. And at the end of August, I had, an, I had a medical emergency. Now, for us in North America, when you get fired, they give you insurance called COBRA. And it kind of covers your, your health and medical insurance like 90 days after your termination date. And so I was just out of the hospital. I just had emergency surgery to save my life. I had a, my gallbladder ruptured, right? And they come to me, my former employer, who terminated me, who I already signed all sorts of agreements with, right? They came back to me and said, we would like to offer you $9,999 in exchange for confidentiality, and we will extend your COBRA insurance, and we will give you a reference letter from the CFO of this company so you can go anywhere you want and get a job, right? And I was still on painkillers at the time, so I was like, I signed it. But a couple of days later, I was like, what did I sign? What was that all about? Why not $10,000? Oh, because they would have to report it to their board of directors. They're a publicly traded company. So $9,999 is a very specific number, right? And it's all signed off by the CFO of the company. And I got a job offer about a week or two later. And that allowed me to be like, well, I want to find out the answers to these other questions. So I, during the job offer, I had taken that client I had a buddy, I mean, it's not really important, but I had a buddy who worked at a company we had worked together before. They needed a New York sales rep. I was not representing anybody at that point. I took him to Windows on the World Friday night before 9-11. And during that dinner, we had a couple cocktails. I made a phone call from inside at the house phone down to the sec secretary who represents Marsh. And I said, I've got these documents. I want to drop them off. So Monday, I got a voicemail back from her. And she says, hey, the word is drop these documents off. There's, there's a big meeting Tuesday morning at the World Trade Center. There's going to be a break in the meeting. You can drop them off during the break. And then these executives who are going to be fired can confront the other executives who are going to fire them, right? The executives who are going to do the firing, they weren't there that day, right? So I'm driving these documents down Tuesday morning. So context. Let me set. 
I lived on the Upper West Side of New York, 87th and Riverside. Tuesday, September 11th is a beautiful, like cloud-free morning. I'm driving down West Side Highway directly toward World Trade Center 1 and 2 the whole time. Like the whole drive is just south toward the trade centers. I'm in a convertible. I have the top down. So when I get down close to the trade centers and the red light I'm at, there's traffic. But usually when the red light changes, traffic moves a little bit. Traffic didn't move. And then I heard a cab beside me playing like some loud news report. So I turned it on. I'm like, something's going on. And then I look up and World Trade Center 1 has black smoke coming out of it. I'm like, what happened? And the radio tells me two, two things that morning. It was a Cessna. And I thought, well, I've looked in the, uh, from the office down. I've seen planes and helicopters fly below our offices. So that's possible wind shear accident, you know. So they say both Cessna and then they have a report. It was a helicopter. And both of those kind of made sense. So I'm hanging out at the scene. The fire department's not there yet. There's nothing I can do. So I don't get out of the car. I take a left on Vesey Street, and I'm continuing to watch, and it's a tragic event, but I thought it was an accident until World Trade Center 2 blows up up here to my right, and at the same time that that happens, there's uh, World Trade Center 6 right next to me, and I see these flashes go off in the building like at the same time, like they were, like they were synchronized, right? That just triggered my brain into a panic. And I was like, these are whatever's going on. It's not accidental. And I had never, I mean, fathomed the terrorist attack in New York. Although I had seen that movie, The Siege with Denzel Washington. Right. So like I had the idea of that from movies, but I never thought as an American, I'd be in the middle of a terrorist attack like that. I immediately headed north. I left the city through the Holland Tunnel. My plan was after dropping off those documents to go across the river to Red Bank where we had a buddy who had a beach house and it was the last week of the summer. So we were going to go there for the rest of the week. I did not go there because it was too early. We were meeting there like at noon. This is like 9am. So I headed down to my buddy's house in Princeton, the guys that were going to meet up at the beach house. And I went in and by the time I got there, I turned on a TV cause I couldn't explain what was going on. By then the Pentagon was hit on the way on the drive down there. I turned on the TV and we saw like the South tower. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense. I was trying to compute. And then a little bit later, it's North Tower. And in my brain, I'm like, because I've been in those buildings a lot. North Tower more than the South Tower. But I've been to the South Tower. I've been to the observation deck one time. Um, and working on a 96th floor of World Trade Center 1. I'm very familiar with how the elevators work. And they don't go all the way to the bottom. There's only one elevator in the whole place that goes all the way to the bottom. And the lobby's blown out on the opposite side of that elevator. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions, and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. 
Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. So those are things I've, I can see. You know, I, I thought of that stuff later. But in the, the moment when I'm watching on TV that morning, my brain's like, that's 220 square acres of rebar reinforced concrete that just disappeared in like 20 seconds. Like there's it, it didn't. If you watch skyscrapers coming down in China, there's a whole video. There's like 20 of them. They, they try to have it fall in their own footprint, and they always fall off to the side, even though these, those are planned demolitions in China. What happened on 9-11 is like, it's a multi-layered, not what the cover story advertises uh, event. So you got to look at it more scrutinizingly. And before you put evidence on the table and say this or this or this, I'm going to ask, what's the evidence? Where is it at? Where is it archived? Who tracked it? What's the chain of custody? Because there's a whole lot of stuff. Like the the proof of the, one of the hijackers, Satan al-Sakami, is because his passport survived the fireball and was found on the street. Like, it, you know, so it's like the passport survives all of that, but not. Okay, so, you know, there's and that's not just one thing. And that's not any of the examples that led me to read a whole lot of books. But when you look into any of these points, uh, the, the evidence should be like, where is the evidence? And do we believe that that was found like that? You know, so uh, it taught me not to be so naive. It taught me to read the documents because these people who are doing these things, they write about it beforehand. You can read. Everyone knows about the project for a new American century document from 2000. There's a document two years before that that inspired that document. So there's a whole chain of they would like to do these things. Catastrophic terrorism involving World Trade Center and Osama bin Laden. And it's in Council on Foreign Relations, Foreign Affairs, November 1998. They got several articles. There's one on Osama bin Laden. There's one on catastrophic terrorism. The people who wrote catastrophic terrorism, John Deutsch, who was a drug smuggling guy accused from the CIA, Philip Zelikow, who was the administrator over the 9-11 commission report and Ashton Carter, who became secretary of defense. So you have people who rise to power because of such things, but let's just blame it on people in caves over there and simplify the story. Cause America doesn't need too much complexity to go to war. Wow. You've got me and all of the viewers absolutely mesmerized with this story and the level of detail you've given us here. This is fantastic. Well, let's unmesmerize them because that's not the goal. Okay. Well, <laughs> I want, usually I bring, uh, I bring the books. I got a book cam. I got all sorts of facts, evidence, artifacts of the new world order, internationalism, how they subjugate us and how we can become free of it. So let me be of more service than inadvertently well, I, mesmerizing I, I, them. I think mesmerizing people is important because it draws their attention to the goal. But let's continue with the Yeah, day. attention, interest, but then you got to deliver substance and meaning. That's where the relationship starts. Well, we've got plenty and of time. And the relationship is just between people and the world around them. Take us through the rest of the day because I'm curious as to what happened next. All right. So um, I didn't know about World Trade Center 7 until probably, you know, months afterwards i mean no one really looked at that that day i don't remember anyone talking about it right so after that day the city was closed i was in new jersey i think it was the bridges and tunnels were closed for two or three days by the time i went back to the city you could i mean you could smell the smell of death like from 
20 miles away. Like in New Jersey, just driving there, you can just smell burnt stuff, human being stuff. Like it was just, it was, it was a stench. It was, a, it was not something that you wanted to be inhaling. Right. And then there's people down there cleaning it up real time being told, don't wear a mask, don't wear a mask. Right. So um, I went to a lot of memorial services because at my client, there were, there were 320 uh, people who were there that day in the building that worked for Marsha McLennan. So we had done a lot of business together over the years um, and like a lot of Disney, uh, dinners and stuff like that. Right. So when I went to some of these events and I saw people that were like uh, not mourning, but that kind of like just, it, it put me in the mood of, is there something here that I'm missing other than maybe, you know, the insider trading. I found out about that like a month or so later. And when you started getting, you know, the answers didn't go back to what was these guys in a cave over there. It's like, no, it goes back to the number three guy at CIA, Buzzy Krongard. And there's insider trading on Marsha McLennan and American Airlines. So that's very specific information of which airline is going to be claimed to fly into this part of the building that has this client, right? If you look at where the other building exploded, uh, World Trade Center 2, that's a um, fiduciary trust company. And you ask questions like, where was the CEO of the, of the company at that time? She was playing golf that morning with Warren Buffett at his, at his last annual golf outing in Offutt Air Force Base, Nebraska, where George W. Bush later has to go, right? And that's like, uh, is it, I don't know if it's SAC, Strategic Air Command Headquarters, but it's something like that. There's a huge military stronghold in that area. And when you're playing at Warren Buffett's golf tournament and you hear that your offices in the World Trade Center just got blown up, I bet whoever invited you to that tournament feels you owe them something for saving your life because a lot of other people didn't get that warning because they needed real people in those buildings to do the thing, you know? And the inspection of the insurance policies on the building that were so, so specific, the change of ownership that summer so that those insurance policies could be created and then cashed in years later for billions more than their investment. So there was a huge profiteering aspect and that goes on in many, many, many layers, the insider trading, the real estate part, um, the, the downloads of information that were being taken out of the trading floors of Cantor Fitzgerald and other companies. Like at the time of the attack, there was a hack attack that was pulling data out of that building and putting it into NATO and Belgium, uh, Brussels, Belgium. So there's a whole bunch of things that I asked, how did the hijackers do that? Right. How did the hijackers have like 17 simultaneous war games going on that morning to confuse all of America's infrastructure so that they couldn't respond? How could NORAD because of those drills? So I'm not saying it was still flying around. I'm going to say because of those drills, NORAD was confused as to whether whether or not Flight 11 really terminated at the World Trade Center that morning because they reported it was still flying after the event. Now, they were probably confused because of so many war games going on, but still, that's a thing. There's confusion of identification of basic things on that morning. And I really had a lot of hope in the 9-11 commission report because I didn't know who Philip Zelikow was. I didn't know that he came to the commission with the outline for the conclusion already typed up. I didn't know those things. I didn't know he was a professional creator of public myths. That's like part of his thing. If you check him out academically, right? So 445 days after the event, they come out with this book. I read through the book. 
Well, actually, that day I downloaded it because I it was uh, July twenty second, two thousand four. I think it was some somewhere around there. And I read through the whole thing, and I was like, "This is bullshit. This is like the Warren Commission." There's so many key facts and pieces of evidence that are just sanitized from their story in order to make it true. And any one of them would crack open the, the narrative or the, the myth that they're trying to create, right? So, so that's what, like I said, 2004. So then it's like I'm in the midst of reading this stuff. I'm learning about it. I'm actively involved in a uh, litigation against – because I was a whistleblower. So I was a pro se litigant for three years because I was up against a multi-billion dollar company whose founder was the ambassador to Ireland for the United States of America. And he was Dick Cheney's biggest fundraiser. And the firm that I was up against by myself is a multi-billion dollar firm called Skadden Arps. And when the United States gets in trouble for narco-terrorism and all sorts of other dirty things, they call Skadden Arps to protect them. I went in the court. I had legally attained evidence. I played it all. They couldn't, they couldn't retort or refute it. And I really thought I won. And then nine months later, they sent me a letter saying I lost. Right. So going through that phase, uh, I said, I'm not going back to the corporate world. I don't trust this whole legal, you know, there's supposed to be a net for whistleblowers. There's supposed to be protections. Right. As an example, as a whistleblower under the federal regulation of Sarbanes-Oxley, I'm entitled to protection, which means if you are the VP of human resources or the VP of legal resources in the company you're not allowed to terminate me you have to protect me and investigate my case i proved in court with their own people agreeing that they decided to terminate me on the day i blew the whistle and it was the two specific people who are not allowed to do that and they should the, the penalty is two years in prison nobody got prison they collect multi-million dollar paychecks every year to protect that company company's not going to sell them out the whole whistleblowing process is an early warning system to that company to cover it up and excise you out of the picture there's not journalists or media that want to cover it i went to lowell bergman i went to like every journalist and big attorney in this country people are like oh jerry spence will help you no he won't no he won't and you can have the goods and you can have legally attained audio recordings hundreds of hours of these guys admitting it in their own words and they don't care and you're not going to change their narrative so it was with that realization, that loss of naivete, that I was like, okay, I need to research things and publish on my own and just get the truth out there. And for 10 years or 12 years, probably, I did that, you know, 80 hours a week and I did everything for free and it was all out there. And it's like, I need to do this because freedom's more important than profiting from it. I wasn't <laughs> uh, a father back then, you know, so I do things differently now. Because I've been doing it for so long. It's like I contributed. I sacrificed a multi-million dollar career. And I gave everything away for 12 years. So now I do give stuff away for free. 15% of my time. And the other 85% I service clients at our consulting company. And I help students in our training program. So I deliver high value over here. But I still take a slice every week to do the Grand Theft World podcast. Do real-time deep dive analysis into current events. And that... Uh, complements my peace revolution historical deep dives for the 20th century wow so i want to go over the 9-11 insider trading more slowly mm. um i don't know if you heard in the sure. introduction but it was the 9-11 insider trading and enron in particular that woke me up because i was working in the stock market and i was an options principal so all I right fully, so can I so fully understood the mechanics of it all so the enron 
and the Tyco International and Anderson Consulting were the big accounting frauds at the beginning of the 20, 21st century. So Congress in 2002 said these things are very disruptive to our economy when these companies lie. So the, the deal was in the emails, it will say one thing, but like uh, they would take these emails out and delete them. And so now you can't see their dirty work. So Congress said we have to have a statute that prevents companies from deleting audit trail information so that they can be audited and you can actually see what goes on. Right. So if the FBI and SEC want to investigate, the company has to turn over every email, every. So it was called Sarbanes-Oxley. And there was also one for stock market was 17 A4 regulation, SEC regulation. Both of them mandated that you had to use software in a write once, read many format, a worm format that would be preserved uh, as uh, a disaster recoveries for investigation. So the company I went to work for sold that product, which was mandated by every publicly traded company had to buy it. So when I'm when I'm helping these companies protect themselves and I find out that there's a back door into that program so people can nefariously delete stuff and that that's why that, that puts them at risk. It's like selling them a condom with a hole in it. They're not going to get the result they're expecting from that protection. So that's why I became a whistleblower because I specifically trained clients on how to blow the whistle under that product. And then I got violations of that very thing. So I knew about it. I had trained people on it. It was ironic that I had to blow the whistle under that statute. But after I had, it was the National Association of Securities Dealers that told me there was a back door in it. And the meeting I had the month before was with the chief general counsel of Tyco International. Her name was Valley Baudasano. She worked at like Pfizer. She had just cooked the books on some merger, she said, right? She's like, this is, so anyway, she says, you're trying to tell me how to keep all this information. And I'm like two weeks into the company. I'm like, yeah, this is the, this is the thing you have to do. And she's like, I want to know how to delete this information without people seeing it. And I was like, record scratch. I'm like, what? Like, again, I'm from Western Pennsylvania. I might be a little naive. I thought people were more honest than that. And they wouldn't say it out loud in a meeting. But one of my tech guys is like, oh, we could talk about that offline. So I was a little suspicious in July. But when I got to the August National Association of Securities Dealers meeting, and they're like, we're not buying this because this is more like this is a dangerous thing that you're and I'm like, OK. So then I took that back to management. I got a lot of pushback and resistance. Hey, don't worry about it. We know that, you know, they were selling it for another reason. And then the other reason I blew the whistle was because the company I worked for was being acquired by the company I eventually had to sue. Right. So a multi-billion dollar company was gobbling up a, a one dollar, a one billion dollar company. Right. And I thought they were getting ripped off because I'm like, they're only buying this company because we have this product that this product has a, a vulnerability. They should know they're being taken advantage of. What I found through the process is, no, son, that's why we're buying it. So, yeah, it's good lessons about how the real world works and the difference between ideals and actuality. It's epistemology. Okay, can you explain how the options trading worked then? Oh, how, right, right, right. Thank you. How people All right, so um, the reports, there was a whole bunch of different stocks that were traded. Right. So not all these early stocks were participatory in 9-11. But in the week or two before the event, there were stock option puts, bets against certain companies. American Airlines, Marshall McLennan among them, Deutsche Bank among them. So companies that might be adversely affected. So when those trades were investigated, they went back to a guy who used to work at Alex Brown Deutsche Bank, who was also 
one of my clients when I worked at the place in 2001, right? So I'm finding connections between the insider trading on one of my clients and it's being done at the place where number three from CIA is now hanging his private hat, right? So and then I investigated into, well, is uh, there's a couple of different studies on the insider trades. Let me give you some references first. The best book that gives you like the catalogs of this would be the 9-11 Timeline by Paul Thompson. There's another nine, it's called the Terror Timeline. So it's a similar book. And then there's a, a book by Professor Paul Zaremka called, it's like all the news stories of 9-11. So in there, you would see news stories on identification of various elements of 9-11. And part of that was uh, uh, 9-11 trading, right? Uh, the other book would be Black 9-11 by Mark Gaffney. And there's elements of my story in there because he talks about AIG and Marsha McLennan and the other corporate connections behind 9-11 that go beyond the insider trading. There was a University of Chicago study on insider trading by Professor Allen. I forget his last name. And uh, so there's a variety of sources to dig into. But that was just one of the things that I was like, how did the terrorists do that? So when you get a whole stack of how did the terrorists do that questions, I started to question the actual narrative. And then when you answer like, well, <clears throat> these mostly Saudi extremist Muslim suicide bombers, very, very specific codec they got rolling there, right? Like uh, they were able to not only do the thing, but not puss out at the last minute and veer the plane. You know, there's a whole thing there, right? It's like it all just worked. Well, what's the relationship of uh, the Saudi family in the United States? What's the relationship of the bin Laden family in the Bush family, right? So when you start to see, oh, there's a group of people, Anglo-American people, who have CIA, MI6, trained proxy forces that are specifically Arab proxy forces to be used in things like Operation Cyclone, where Osama bin Laden was used to fight the Soviets, right? So it just seemed very convenient that it went back to this place where it's like a, a firewall. You can't see behind Saudi Arabia because the British created the royal family of Saudi Arabia. They went to Ibn Saud and said, how do you like a kingdom? We're going to set you up. We want your oil, but we need you to be a front for it. So we act like, oh, it's not our fault. It's them over there. So there's a lot to any of the elements of the story. But the hijackers really lead you out quickly. Like uh, Daniel Hopsicker made uh, Mohammed Atta in the Venice Flying Circus. And he did, he's an investigative journalist. He went in and said, well, let's look at these hijackers. And where did they spend their time and their money prior to 9-11? Well, if they're doing blow and doing strip club type things, tells me they're probably not extremist, Islamist, terrorist types because the, the Islamic part would preclude the drinking and cocaine in girls. And the extremist part of Islam, it would be, it'd be they keep that stuff even further. It was uh, more like if the CIA and MI6 were grooming some people to run courier flights under diplomatic immunity, you know, like George W. Bush and James R. Bath, the bin Laden money manager and Bush's partner used to do. Right. So there's a history of this group of people to whom the rules don't apply, um, you know, call them kids of the non-elected elite running drugs and using their privilege. Right. So if you say do these hijackers look more like people who could have got suckered onto planes with some offer 
or do they look like the guys that could infiltrate airport security and take down these military trained pilots and turn off the transponders and turn them back on, do all this other stuff in the midst of chaos? I don't know. And then once you start to stack up the history of, you know, MI6 and CIA, what have they been doing for the past 60 years? Have they ever done things like this before? You know, what is Operation Northwoods? You get into, oh, there's a group of people that are taxpayer funded and black market funded. And they're some of the biggest arms dealers in the world. And they're bringing you these narratives of how they go other places and take the resources. Like the study of 20th century. I agree with everything that Max was saying there at the end. The study of the 20th century isn't about like World War One, World War Two. It's like the, the empire needed resources here. So there's war here. The empire needed some lithium over here. They needed some uh, coal tan or coal. Was it coal tar, coal tan from down here? And that's the story of empire. So it's always existed in human history, but we could turn it down from a spinal tap 11 to like a two. If we all learned our rights and freedoms, learn some critical thinking so we can disinfo- uh, uh, de- decentralize the disinformation decoding because they want us to believe the authorities and fact checkers. Really, we just need to use what's between our ears to a higher potential. So you made a documentary, 9-11 Synchronicity. Tell us about that. Oh, that was my first podcast. So I got into doing research. I started reaching out to various uh, media personalities saying, look, I have, from my perspective, seen these things, these corporate connections, the 9-11. I don't know too much about globalism or new world order at that point, but I did know that these corporations had some CD business. And I knew that the people who had the insurance on those buildings had some. So I was just trying to say, look, you with the platform should look into this, Sean, you should do something about it. And like after two years of doing that, I had uh, Maria Heller listen to it. And she said, you know what? I need to play this, uh, you know, and publish it to the internet. And I was like, this isn't supposed to be for the internet. This is me telling you, you got something to do, go do it. And I'll be a listener. She's like, no, you need to be the change you want to see in the world. Like if you, if you see this needs to be done and no one else is doing it, this is what you should do. And so, um, she put that out and then I got a lot of feedback from that initial message, which was called project constellation, which is like the two hour version of what your first question answered was. Right. Uh, and that was the first episode in my nine 11 synchronicity podcast. So that was around 2006. So I did that series for three years and then that was all contradictions of nine 11 for your consideration in a time capsule for the future. Cause the way they control us is by not letting us know what happened in the past. So I was like, okay, I'm going to just take steps ahead of their plan. I'm going to seed the future with all this artifacts and evidence that they'd like to censor and, and inconveniently like uh, forget about it for you. If I bottle that up and put it out on the internet, uh, people can preserve it into the future and then you can hear back. Right. So then my next series peace revolution is a study of history in the 20th century. It's all the stuff you never heard about any of these topics. So I did a 50th anniversary of JFK uh, back in like 2013 is a 20 hour episode. And in that 20 hours, you're not going to hear much you've ever heard before. Like the first weapon on the scene, according to the Dallas police who had been in this, this policeman had been to world war two. It's a German Mauser. It's not a man liquor Carcano. There is no such rifle as a man liquor Carcano. They made it up. So there's all these things. It's like, that's how they assassinated the first head of state. And then that group has been in power ever since. And that's an Anglo American Israeli globalist group. And they're intermingled to this point where you can't really separate them. And the way to to win is to just put back what they took out to conquer us in the first place. Give people back the ability to learn anything. Give them a method. Here's that. Now you can creatively problem solve. You can communicate. You can get things done. You can make goals. You can have meetings. You can move the ball forward for freedom. 
But without that, everyone's just in a hypnotic daze towards some sort of smart device that is totally being controlled by the people who are doing the real things in the world. So are you so, hopeful, Richard? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a white pill optimist. <laughs> and I believe in people's capacity to learn, even on short notice, right? So uh, I, I keep it real because I can't be that smart today because I know how much more I've learned since yesterday, right? So I'm the learner. I'm engaged in life. I'm curious. I don't think I know the answers without looking. Um, I'm optimistic, uh, generally happy and not frustrated, though. Today, getting to this meeting almost made me tangry, angry at the tech. I was like, what is going on? But I knew if I just uh, persisted, uh, it would flourish on the other side. So if people just had these general elements of absence of scarcity mindset, there is scar scarcity in reality, and we need the infinite mindset to be able to deal with the scarcity in reality and come up with new solutions. When you start governing or limiting your mind to be like, I can't think of these ideas, I don't know, or the I can't mentality, that's learned helplessness. And that keeps a lot of people stagnant and abused by the system just continuously, right? So if we can learn to be curious enough to ask questions and get into motion, asking the question is the starting of thinking. And once you start thinking, then everything becomes a little bit easier. And then moving forward, you can be optimistic because you know you can teach other people how to do what you learn for yourself. And we can pay it forward. So the people trying to destroy our freedom are trying to destroy it because they don't understand it. And because they don't understand it, it's very hard for them to destroy. They need us to participate in the destruction of our own freedom. And I say, stop giving the pricks the satisfaction and let's learn how to peacefully resist by knowing what the limit of our freedoms are and acting within it and defending others who encroach on it. And I think that's uh, intellectual self-defense, physical self-defense and non-aggression are the triangle that make uh, freedom. So if people are plugged into technological distractions, how bad has the loss of human rights got to get to, to create a, a bigger reaction? Well, I bet right now in Germany, when they're cold, they're going to still have internet access. So just like during the pandemic, people might be discomforted. They, so if, if, the, if the globalists and internationalists just take away your comfort a little bit, all of a sudden people get interested in what's going on. So... Now there's going to be a whole bunch of people in one country who are directly paying attention to what's going on. It's like, wait, you're taking away our heat because of ESG. What is ESG? Oh, it's this whole idea that, you know, humanity is the enemy and we have to get rid of carbon and we have to enforce it through environmental social governance things and these corporations. You get back to people who are like, I just want to be fed and I want to be warm and I'm not going to do X, Y, Z anymore and capitulate. Um, I'm also an optimist having read the entirety of the Gulag Archipelago. And like the first two thirds of that book set, it's really tough. But if you can make it to the third part and find out, oh, they discovered the end of their own oppression. Like when they would be assigned 10 years, they were taking it because it's not worth risking your life. But when they don't let you out after 10 years and they're assigning new people 25 years, then you're like, fuck this, let's get out of here. And they learned how to resist. And the organs of government controlled them through stool pigeons. And they went in and eliminated all the stool pigeons and started running the camps. Today, there's not human beings that are being stool pigeons. It's our devices. So as people liberate themselves or start to use the devices more for their own benefit and less for their own withdrawal or, or liability, we're going to be in a healthier place. So yes, I use technology through my business all week. I'm on, I'm online a lot, but what I'm doing is helping people together online to bring that back to their families, their communities, their, the, the real place that we all exist in all the time. So I try to use the technology knowing it has two edges and I try to limit the use to those things. 
Right, we're getting near the end of the show. My battery's just run out. Hold on. My audio's still going. Oh, here we go. It's come back. Um, While I replace my battery, a question has come in from a viewer, which is, given all the freedom references, what does Richard think of the presence of the Freedom Tower, now called One World Trade Center, on the New York City skyline, is it a symbol of freedom or a reminder of a terrible event? It's a big middle finger to the rest of the world. Also, the 9-11 memorial on that site is basically two black hole abyss type things. I think it's also disingenuous to the people whose lives were ritually sacrificed on that day in that event. The proper thing to do with that property was to make it a commerce free zone that no dollar could ever be traded on those square acres. Again, I think it's 10 square acres. Make the most expensive part of New York City a place where no money, no real estate, no rent could ever be had again. And then you could honor those people's memory. But when you build new things, because the here's the thing, World Trade Center 1 and 2, they were being downgraded in real estate from like a property to a C property. They didn't have modern internet capabilities. There's a whole bunch of things. You can't use cell phones very easily in there because the structure of the building doesn't let the signal go through. They were all like not not halfway empty, but they were at least a third empty, both of them. They were having trouble getting rent in those buildings. They had a big problem. They needed to build new building in that place. And you know what? It's very expensive to take down those two buildings. I'm willing to bet that when they got the insurance back when they built those buildings, didn't somebody ask, how are you going to take them down in the future? And they had a plan and they showed them the plan and they said, go ahead and build those buildings. And we watched that plan happen that day because what you have is a big renovation project, a multi, like it's, it's a $10 billion renovation project that all got paid for by the American taxpayers and all this other stuff to rebuild, you know, clean it up and all that stuff. People's lives were sacrificed in the cleanup of their terrorist event. Right. So I don't like uh, the, yeah, it's not even called, they don't even call it the freedom town anymore. They, it was just kind of some propaganda to get people to embrace it at the beginning, but it doesn't represent freedom. And it was built by the people who were instrumental in the event. Have you watched this documentary from dust to dust and where it shows how Bush came in and said the air was clean and they brought some environmental woman in the air was clean and all Oh yeah, they're running Christine the, uh, from Whitman. She was a governor in New York and she's like, "Oh yeah, she was EPA for under Bush, but she used to be governor in New York I think prior to that or New Jersey, New Jersey." Yeah, they the EPA, they all lied. They all lied to those firefighters and first responders and by all rights nobody should have set foot down there because there weren't people to be recovered. Like if you look at the rescue effort, there's not a whole lot of people who survived any of those explosive deverticalizations. Let's put it that way, right? Um, and they got, yeah, it was, it was not what they showed us in the cartoons or on the TV or in the official history of the event. Like any of the levels that you make it, it's like not accurate. But if you dig into any of those stories, there's a lot of interesting stuff behind there. You might find that companies that were involved, like AIG, you know, they have the world's biggest private air force. And they might be a front for CIA. If you look into who created AIG, it was Cornelius Starr of OSS. And if you look up in the LA Times 2003, the secret insurance agent men, they'll tell you all about it, right? So there are these elements that are right outside the official story that are really interesting. But you're not going to get there from reading the 9-11 Commission report because their job is to whitewash and hide and redact and to give you a narrative that seems palatable if you don't really study it. 
because that's the majority of people. They don't have time to study it. So as long as they fool the majority of people on any given thing, they remain totally in control of uh, statecraft and foreign policy. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating, Richard. I wish you all the best with your mission. Can you tell the viewers where they can find you and support you and watch your stuff? I have a link tree uh, forward slash Richard Grove. My podcast, Grand Theft World, is on Sunday nights, 9 p.m. Eastern. We go for six or seven hours. I like long-form content too, Sean, see? And um, during the week, I teach autonomy students at getautonomy.info. Oh, I brought you guys something. Getautonomy.info forward slash Freedom Vault. Because from there, you can get into the 9-11 Synchronicity podcast, all the things I mentioned. You'd have free access. So get the Freedom Vault. Get the free access to Grand Theft World's membership. Draw all the value out of there, all my contents in there. Uh, Getautonomy.info forward slash Freedom Vault. Did you say six or seven hours you're doing these things for? Oh, yeah. Sunday nights, man. From 9 p.m. till like 3 or 4 a.m. I hope you got a good chiropractor. And then uh, my Friday night lectures go from 9 p.m. till 3 or 4 a.m. And then my four-hour Q&A with students on Sunday is in the afternoon. That's the easiest one. But I do them all here from the standing desk. Holy so I just, uh, you know. Okay, standing That's what I need, a bloody standing desk. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's been absolutely amazing, Richard. Again, cheers from London. I wish you all the best in what you're doing. Hey, thank, thank you, 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 and thank yeah, you, Ash, yeah. for helping to get me hooked up. That was, that was great. And uh, thank you to everyone listening because uh, I find it uh, a better world when we have our thinking caps on and we can talk about real things and reality substantially and meaningfully and move the ball forward for freedom. Definitely. So please go down in the description box and support Richard at all of his links. Cheers, mate. Take care. Thank you. Thanks. Peace. Bye-bye.